This is Jay Hinman of Dynamite Hemorrhage, and you are listening to the Foxy Podcast. There's a bottle of martini on the windowsill. I think mother's drink's moving in for the kill. My mind ain't straight, I'm lurching and reeling. Never knew booze would give me this feeling. My nice clean bed sits looking untidy. All this drinking, I must be round the bend. Next time I'll stick to a half pint of shandy. Cause I've been drinking again. Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota, and here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 80 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. You just heard the hedonist jive from the Midnight Circus to start off the show comes from a great early UK DIY compilation called Angst in My Pants. It also features some other personal favorites like the Instant Automatons, Door in the Window, uh, Digital Dinosaurs, Colin Potter, and more. And I played that as Hedonist Jive was the name of one of Jay Hinman's many blogs and publications that he has ran over the past two decades and beyond, dating back to the early 90s and his super dope fanzine. These days, Jay's main outlet for his broad musical interests is Dynamite Hemorrhage, that is both a semi-regular podcast series and print publication that focuses on sub-underground and other raw music from the last 10 decades. And I believe I mentioned a few episodes back that I had contributed a Freeform Freakout column to the latest issue of Dynamite Hemorrhage number 3 that came out a little over a month ago, which was an honor to be able to do. 
And when it comes to sub-underground music, particularly of the more fringe rock and garage punk variety, Jay is someone who I've often looked to as a trusted source of information, uh, going back to when I regularly read his detailed twang blog. So I was more than pleased that Jay was able to join me for this latest episode of the podcast where we discuss his formative experiences with punk and zine culture through his current activities with Dynamite Hemorrhage. And Jay was also kind enough to pick out all the music that you'll hear throughout the show, including a sampling of tracks from many of the artists featured in the latest issue of Dynamite Hemorrhage. But before we get into my conversation with Jay, I thought I'd play a couple more artists whose song titles inspired other music publications that Jay has done, and the Flesh Eaters have been an important one for sure. So I thought I'd start things off with their track, Agony Shorthand. I want to be placed next to life I want to watch Gavin and see I want to see everything she can mean to me And it's alright with me And it's alright with me And it's alright with me Detail twang, detail twang. 
Your zine writing days date back to the early 90s with your first zine called Super Dope, uh, which had chronicled a lot of the punk and other sub-underground rock and roll activity that was taking place at the time and I guess the decades preceding that as well. You know, what were some of your early formative experiences with punk music? I guess that led you down that path of starting your own zine then. Yeah, like I said, it took a while to finally get to the zine stage. But I mean, I, I sort of date the first glimpse I had of punk music and underground culture to, believe it or not, a Time magazine article in 1977. <laughs> oh, weird. <laughs> it, yeah, it was like it was a magazine that my parents got every week. And so it was just one of those like classic punk scare articles. And, mm-hmm. you know, it talked about the Sex Pistols and the Dead Boys and the Weirdos, all of whose names were great because I, you know, I was nine years old. <laughs> um, I was not an instant convert, but I was definitely intrigued and I found the whole thing very funny <laughs> and so i was i was like a total radio fanatic and i listened to top 40 and fm radio like every waking hour so i was super into music from an early age but a couple of years later i, I would say probably around 1979 i had a much better idea about what i thought was the new wave or what we then called modern music mm-hmm. if you remember. Yeah. And so I would like listen to FM radio and I would write down every song that I heard that I thought might be punk or new wave because I still didn't really have a good idea of kind of what that was. And keep in mind that I was now 11 years old, but <laughs> this is how I discovered um, Lou Reed's Transformer album, uh, Devo, David Bowie, that sort of thing. And then like, I guess a couple years later, I heard college radio for the first time around 1981 via the San Francisco Bay Area station called KFJC, which is still active and plays fantastic music to this day. And so um, that's where I heard my first kind of, quote unquote, sub underground music. And it was where it was also like the time when hardcore punk was becoming a thing. And I was a regular listener to the early maximum rock and roll radio show. Okay. But rather than like go the, you know, the much cooler path of the hardcore punk, I was, I was kind of a high school new waiver and I was a <laughs> total Anglophile. Um, my favorite bands were like Susie and the Banshees and Simple Minds and Bauhaus. And Did you rock the really things. cool hairdo back in the day? Also? No, quite the opposite. I was like the total dweeb who none <laughs> of the new waivers or punks cared about at all. I was just, you know, Mr. Loner in his room with, his radio and his record collection but that's the way i liked it yeah i don't think anything's changed 30 some odd years later <laughs> um but like i used to buy those english weekly papers like melody maker and sounds and enemy wherever i could from a from a place in san jose california where i grew up called the little professor book center which was great <laughs> they for some reason they imported all these the cool english papers and those turned me on to great stuff those those papers were were digging pretty deep and they were re- reviewing everything that was coming out in the uk at the time even like small batch 45s and then like later in high school like the cramps became my big obsession okay so, so, you know, kind of concurrently with all that stuff, I was listening to all this great stuff on, um, you know, college radio, like the fall and the au pairs and stuff as well as hardcore. And it all kind of took, but I just like the new wavy post-punk stuff the best. And I think I was too chicken to go all the way into hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was definite, 
you know, a definite zine culture uh, in the late 80s into the 90s that you were a part of with Super Dope. You know, were there certain zines that you felt a particular kinship with or did you feel like there was a little bit of territorialism at play at the time with certain scenes, say, for example, like hardcore? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, of course there was, but I really loved everything about that snarky and very territorial zine culture of that time. I didn't really do as much of it myself. I was always kind of, you know, good cop, I guess, in a lot of the writing that I did. I started Super Dope in 1991, I believe, or at least started writing it in 1990. But all those kind of snarky and territorial zines helped me a lot in forming a certain mindset about what was worth listening to. And I mean, to this day, I still enjoy a very, you know, well-formed and sharp opinion. And I, I use fanzines and writers to help curate kind of what I should listen to next, as I'm sure a lot of people do. But I mean, the two big kind of most formative ones for me were pretty much the two big ones for everyone else around that time, which were forced exposure and conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, my first week of college in 1985, I bought the forced exposure with Lydia Lunch on the cover just on a whim. Like, I think it was number 10 mm-hmm. um, at Rockpile Records in Goleta, California. California. And and then over Christmas break, a few months later, my friend Jackie let me borrow a stack of Gerard Cosloy's conflict fanzine. And I read those like five or six times each before returning. Now I'm talking like she gave me 20 issues. And I returned to school in 1986, like a totally changed man. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, but both before and after that, I would buy kind of any music magazine I could. Um, like I said, in high school, it was Melody Maker and Sounds and all that stuff. And Flipside and Maximum Rock and Roll in the US. And in college, I would buy you know, absolutely everything. In the the late 80s, it was Force Exposure, Conflict, Flesh and Bones, Brave Ear, Matter, Silt Breeze, etc. And I didn't really discover the stuff I really like, like Slash and Nomag and Touch and Go until later. I mean, Mm -hmm. those were those were not in circulation then. And and mostly I've discovered that stuff online. Right. Have you been... uh kind of fascinated by that website i'll have to censor myself the effing (laughs) record reviews site what's curating a lot of those old uh zines and articles from them yeah and i think that is actually that site has done a really good job of sort of rising or raising fanzine culture up to a new level and, and and kind of helping people recognize how influential those words even though he he just kind of takes the reviews and then just kind of cuts and pastes them mm-hmm. it really gives a sense of the times how people sort of thought about things and yeah i've been a definite fan of that and of course it doesn't hurt that he takes a lot of my stuff and puts it up there <laughs> so <laughs> right well in the wake of super dope you went on to do a number of blogs uh, i guess what you continue to do to this day in fact and i believe it your i guess my first exposure to your writing was probably through your blog that you did called called Detailed Twang, um, I, I think. But um, how, how do you feel or have you felt about the whole move to digital publishing? I mean, does it give you that same sort of rush or satisfaction of putting together a publication like, you know, a Super Dope or now with Dynamite Hemorrhage? Yeah, I mean, at the time, it felt very liberating and very fresh and exciting. Um, I started doing a blog called Agony Shorthand in 2003, I did that to 2006, and that rolled into Detail Twang for a couple of years. But, I mean, I've never really been a professional writer of anything then or now. And I think over the course of my life, I've made a couple hundred dollars or so, you know, for things that I've written. (laughs) Probably most of that was in college for record reviews for the school paper. But blogs were something that I didn't feel the need to agonize over because the stakes were so 
like, absurdly low. And so, you know, I took up I took up writing about music very regularly, and it was almost for, for practice. And it would be just whatever I was listening to or wanted people to know about. But it was crazy. I mean, some posts on Agony Shorthand, some dumb rant that I would do about a band that I felt was overrated or something, it would get you know upwards of sixty to seventy comments, you know, a thousand plus views. And, you know, for a guy who was writing this stuff on his lunch break or right before bed, you know, it, yeah. it was it was more fun in some ways than the fanzine era, because at least when I was doing it, it gave, you know, the fanzine stuff would only give you a validation via like a letter in the mail with a stamp on it. And that was pretty rare. Um, you know, not that I needed my ego stroked badly, but mm-hmm. the instant community that the Internet helped create around these niches of very weird and underground music that I liked was was pretty cool. But I mean, to to really answer your question for 2016, no, I don't think that online writing provides quite the same thrill that a physically assembled fanzine does. And I think part of it stems from me now being in my late 40s and wanting to have something to leave behind, you know, and be remembered remembered for by, you know, the couple hundred people that might care. Um, You know, not that I'm thinking of dying anytime soon, but (laughs) I was thinking, I honestly think mortality is like one of the many drivers and wanting to make something that will be around, you know, 40, 50 years after you're dead. Right, right. Yeah. Well, as someone who has written about music for so long, I mean, are you at all concerned about the quality of music criticism or or journalism that is out there that exists online in this you know social media driven landscape that we live in and i know you you don't consider yourself a professional writer but you've it's been a part of your life for so long and where you see now where things are just kind of spout out there in little blurbs here and there how do you, how do you feel about that yeah, I guess it all depends on how you or, or why you might concern, quote unquote, music journalism in the first place. I, I think music journalism is kind of oxymoronic. So mm-hmm. I'm honestly not all that concerned. I mean, as long as there are smart people with good taste out there who can convince me to listen to something, I'm perfectly OK with that being delivered via a tweet or through a 5000 word essay. You know, mm-hmm. if be. And for all of the people that actually write about music, there's probably only a tiny fraction of one percent of them who actually speak to the sort of music that might interest me or you right Right. so however they choose to transmit their knowledge and taste i'm i'm all for it (laughs) well since uh, a lot of those initial mp3 blogs went i guess belly up in the last i don't know five to eight years or so it seems like you know good music blogs in general are just kind of harder to find um it just doesn't seem to be as many people as you just mentioned that are covering the type of sub underground music and experimental music that you know we both have an interest in does this factor into kind of what keeps you motivated to continue on with like dynamite hemorrhage or final sounds etc all the things that you're doing yeah, that, that's that, I mean, that's probably true at some level. Um, the people who make and love this kind of raw and sub underground rock and experimental music are, are they're certainly out there and they want to read about and discover more. Um, so my motivation to continue, which I'll admit does flag from time to time, it probably has more to do with just wanting to foist my taste on others in, in hopes that they'll find something to get excited about as much as I do. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, nothing is more gratifying than getting an email from someone who says like, wow, man, you totally turned me on to X, Y, and Z. And now I'm really into this because of you. Because that's the way I used to do it for the same for the, the DJs at KFJC or Byron and Jimmy at Forced Exposure, or or my cousin, who I should have mentioned in the formative part earlier, who actually, when I was in college, played me all of the Danger House punks 
oh, singles cool. and just completely blew my mind in like one session. So, I mean, you know, those things, you remember them for the rest of your life. And if I could do that for somebody else, and I, I mean, I'm sure I, uh, there's that's happened a couple times, right? I mean, mm-hmm. any email like that or better still, like a personal face-to-face interaction, and it, it invigorates me to invest more time and energy into writing and podcasting and so on. Right, right. Well, why don't we get into some music here? And, and speaking of formative stuff, this first block of music that we're going to play, you had selected as being kind of like, you know, that uh, that key time of your life where you're discovering a lot of this stuff. And maybe you can speak to some of the, the selections that you had picked out here. Yeah. So, I mean, when you said like play some formative stuff, I, I thought, well, that's, you know, there's so much. Right. And so and, and the formation continues on and on. It's continuing to this day. I'm, I'm continuing to discover stuff that blows my mind. But the first song that I thought I would play is The Avengers, The American in Me. And that's because it's the first punk rock song I ever heard on the radio that made me say, like, that's it. This is the music I like. And, you know, of course, I wish it was something a little bit cooler, like the first crime single or something. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, I didn't hear that until way later. And plus, The Avengers were from this. San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I'm from. So this set is focused on things that at various stages, mostly early on, uh, I consider formative and still great music to this day. All right. Well, we'll start off then with this track from The Avengers. This is The American in Me. And that's the way I'm gonna dig. Money, 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 I can't get Money, 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 
good time and throw it all away. Oh. Uranium rock, money, money, honey, the kind you fold, money, money, honey, rock and roll, bring it in, make it up like hey, I'm a rock, good time, I'm throw it all away. Oh!
he, he said, he smiled. Something to dance to, a certain style, smile.
things you wish they'd crumble and your presence spreads like a stain. Scratched on the skies, see the remains of your plane. So you're back to uh, publishing an actual print zine now with 
dynamite hemorrhage. I guess what compelled you to to get back into to doing an actual uh, print publication once again? Yeah, you know, it really was as simple as seeing that there actually might be an audience that would read it and knowing that I didn't necessarily have to rely on distributors to sell it and could do it myself over the Internet. We'd sort of arrived at a time where, you know, that sort of entrepreneurial thing didn't involve just tons and tons and tons of work and relying on distributors who didn't pay very much. And, you know, also record stores were opening again. Right. This is just a few years ago. Vinyl mm -hmm. was flying off the shelves. And in many ways, it felt like 1991 all over again. And so <laughs> I said, well, why not a print fanzine? Let's let's. Let's see if I can, you know, do this again. And plus, I felt like I had interview targets or articles that I'd wanted to write, and I, you know, that just didn't work online. You know, stuff that I thought that might not otherwise get covered, like a piece on Chris D and the Flesh Eaters that focused only on like the late '70s and his time at Slash Magazine, rather than on what everyone else wanted to talk about, which is A Minute to Pray, Second to Die, and, and some of their other albums. Um, or the interview that I did with Tim Warren of Crypt Records that only focused on his Back from the Grave 60s punk re uh, comps and not on the other stuff that he's put out. And I, you know, I also wanted to see if I could actually pull it off. And so I brought on um, an excellent uh, contributing editor and Erica Elizabeth, who split up the reviews with me. And I was able to put out something with the kind of breadth and depth that I've mostly been happy with so far. Mm -hmm. And was that two or three years ago when, when the first one yeah. came out? 20, 2013, then I put out the second one in 2014, took a break uh, last year, and then put out a new one just, uh, what, like five or six weeks ago. Right, right. Yeah. Well, have you been encouraged uh, and excited by this recent uptick in print zines? Like, you know, uh, the Bull Tongue Review is out for damning. Uh, I'm seeing others that are kind of trickling out there. Is that exciting for you again to be like, maybe there is this uh, renaissance of zines uh, along with vinyl? Yeah, I mean, I'm very encouraged and excited. I mean, I try to buy all of the good ones and even some of the not so good ones. And I, I think I have a better appreciation for them now because I, I realize that I kind of miss them when they, they weren't around. Um, you know, fanzines for me in the 80s and 90s were what I read when I had a hangover on a Sunday morning or, or <laughs> you, know, that, you know, after seeing bands till two in the morning the night before. And, you know, now I don't really get hangovers, but I read ones such as the the cup the ones that you mentioned along with um you know totally nang i don't know if you've seen that one before it's very cool scottish scene and um a few others you know and i read them clean and sober and you know we, we talked about the the f and record reviews blog like i said he's done a really great job of bringing the utility of fanzines of the past kind of back to life so mm -hmm. um yeah absolutely encouraged well in our in our prior communication you had expressed i guess a, a desire to broaden the focus of dynamite hemorrhage are you trying to bring in some of those interests that you were looking to cover with i guess perhaps like this final sounds blog and podcast that you had for a brief period of time and maybe that's still kind of floating out there but do you see now that dynamite hemorrhage can maybe just naturally uh, kind of contain all of these different things or just expand to accommodate some of these interests <laughs> yeah i'm so i, I i'm so i go i'm wishy-washy about how i want to play that it's it's sort of happening to some degree perhaps not enough or as much as it should but in the second issue i did a piece on my favorite kind of jamaican dub lps of the 70s which is has long been a style of music i've loved for years but i've never written about it and this new issue, number three, I interviewed Sybil Beyer, who is a lost German folk singer of the early 70s, whose music finally came out in 2008. And I, uh, I decided to build an article around this short email interview that she and I did. And I included five other women whose music could be said to have been you know, influenced by hers, or at least have some of the kind of ghostly, sparse, and, and lovely qualities that Sybil Beyer has. But 
you know, I, I do actually listen to a lot more than just underground rock music, and I have for some time, but I am admittedly not very good at writing about it. Um, <laughs> I wish I was. <laughs> I'm, I'm really a dilettante, you know. So the Final Sounds blog and podcast was kind of envisioned to be a blog and podcast where I explored some of this stuff, like 78 RPM music and experimental and ambient noisy stuff, like like what Freeform Freakout plays, frankly, um, right. dub and avant folk music and so on. But it's been really spotty. I do want to do more with it, um, kind of as writing practice, but also as a means to spur me to keep digging and keep digging into these micro genres that I haven't paid enough attention to. Um, I think it was I, I, in the mid 90s, I think when I was a little more garage punk than now, I, I kind of actively rejected a lot of experimental stuff that so many of my peers, especially fanzine writers, were really getting into. And I, I found that like by throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I'm, I'm now sort of crawling back <laughs> in 2016. <laughs> and I'm discovering stuff that I now that I probably should have paid heed to then. Um, so and, and of course, we should acknowledge that there is a freeform freakout column in Dynamite Hemorrhage number three that you, in fact, wrote. And that's <laughs> part that's part of this branching out. But I wanted to make sure that any writing about more experimental stuff was done by someone who knew it. He was talking about sometimes, sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> well, at least in that piece. <laughs> Well, let's let's talk about some of the specific content in Dynamite Hemorrhage number three that just came out. I guess yeah, a little over a month ago at this point. Um, there, there's some really really great interview features in this issue, and one in particular that I was pretty psyched about was this one on Sarah Fancy. Um, she being the Sarah from Amos and Sarah. Uh, I guess one of the many projects affiliated with the It's War Boys label. Something that I've been really quite fascinated with uh, over the last few years and trying to find out as much as I can. And there really isn't a ton out there about that label and kind of the group, the, the group of people that were in and around that. So um, yeah, it, it, her story is so fascinating too. Um, how did this whole interview come about? Man, I, I was so happy to get that because I didn't even know if Sarah Fancy was a real person, let alone someone who would be willing to talk yeah, to I, me. I truly thought that it was just another name for like Jim Welton. I totally. Did, I did not think that there was an actual Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I figured if, if there was a woman named Emma or Claire or something like that, you know, and then she was a friend of Jim Welton's or maybe it was him singing through a phaser or something right. like that. But, <laughs> but I mean, I, I'd only actually heard the Amos and Sarah stuff for the first time in like the last maybe year, 18 months, and I became totally obsessed with it. It's my favorite thing that, that Jim Welton has ever done, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that includes the homosexuals. I love that stuff. And yeah. so did all this online searching and I found an Amos and Sarah Facebook fan page that I think um, she told me either two Spaniards or two Italians were doing. And I, I just dropped a little note on there and I said, does anyone know how to find the mysterious Sarah Fancy or something like that? And it turned out that she was working on putting out a reissue, LP reissues of both the two Amos and Sarah tapes. She and, and, and Welton are doing that right now. Right. She saw the page. She got in touch. And yeah, she goes by Sarah Fancy, whether or not that's really her name. Mm-hmm. But she, you know, in the process of that, she directed me to her website. And I learned that she's now a therapist in the California desert who uses horses to help people work through their relationship problems or other traumas. And she has this crazy past as a professional bodybuilder. And I knew that was just going to be a simple interview about her records was going to be something a lot better. So I was really happy to get that one done. Right, right. You know, I, I suppose... You move from uh, post-punk music into bodybuilding. That's just a natural progression, right? Right, and then into equine therapy. You know, right. that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's pretty pretty cool. Definitely an interesting eclectic person. Yeah, and she's she's just put out a CD this week as well. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and another one that I guess I was really drawn to was this in-depth oral history of the group World of Pooh, who I'm honestly not that familiar with, more a name than in actually knowing their music. But um, you had mentioned in your introduction to this article that this group, you know, you were talking about kind of branching out or opening up into other music. It took you a while, but you had wrote in the introduction that, quote, they led you to this rapid morphing of your own rock and roll sensibilities away from a full reliance on agro garage garbage punk rock and into a subtle flowering of appreciation for many different kinds of musical tension. And I'm sure that's odd for you to hear your own writing in such a long, yeah, long my own <laughs> but, um, you know, in retrospect, what, what did you find so interesting about the world of who's music compared to, I guess, what else was happening in San Francisco at the time? Yeah, in 1989, when I did move to San Francisco, I had just spent four years um, as a college radio DJ in Santa Barbara, where I was going to school. And my radio show there was really classic punk and garage and kind of loud indie rock stuff. You know, everything from like Red Cross to the Electric Eels to Pussy Galore and the sort of stuff that was coming out at the time on Sub Pop and Touch and Go and SST and Homestead, etc. Mm-hmm. All of the heavy hitter- hitters of the, of the day. Yeah. And, you know, I moved to San Francisco, which had been the plan all along after I graduated. And I stumbled onto this, you know, really, truly sub underground scene of very weird and creative and interesting bands. Um, and my favorites were World of Pooh and the Thinking Fellers Union Local 282. And there was also the Archipelago Brewing Company, Carolinaer, and a bunch of other, you know, total nutballs. And yeah, right. that was the same year that I also discovered New Zealand bands, you know, Flying Nun Stuff and Expressway. I think I'd only heard the clean up to that point. I'd actually started listening very deeply to the the second and third Wire albums then, rather than just Pink Flag. I got really into Per Ubu. Yeah. <laughs> I discovered certain indie pop and even like country music sounds could be to my liking. And so World of Pooh, I mean, Barbara Manning from that band, who she sang and played uh, bass in that band, and she really helped me get over the, my sort of raw, fast, loud, whatever bias, and paid more attention to acoustic stuff. And then uh, Brandon Kearney, who was the band's guitar player, was an acquaintance at the time, and I, I really kind of looked up to the guy. He was very musically omnivorous, and he inspired me at some level to try a little harder myself to be as well. Mm-hmm. Well, let's. Um, t- well, before we get into some more music that is uh, related to this issue, maybe. Could you briefly just share maybe a couple of the other pieces that uh, you have in the new issue? Um, in, in addition to this Sarah Fancy interview, we've got the World of Pooh uh, oral history. There's some stuff on the coolies. What else can you mention for the listeners out there? Sure, yeah. The, the cover story, uh, it's a little bit calculated, I'll be honest. Um, the, I made, Number two, the second issue of the magazine, I put Bill Doreen, um, kind of New Zealand underground guy from the 80s, 90s, and even now on the cover. And it did not sell well. Uh, surprisingly enough, Bill Doreen, not, you know, a, a big cover star, uh, you know, fanzine mover. So I put the Velvet Underground on the cover and it wasn't just throw them on so I'd sell a lot of copies because the cover story is actually an interview with Phil Milstein, who mm-hmm. started the Velvet Underground Appreciation Society back in 1977, which was like a time when some of their records were actually out of print and the Velvet Underground were not the cultural force that they later became. And, you know, so Milstein, like he put out bootleg tapes and Velvet's fanzines and the like, and I thought that would make for a really good piece. And, and it did. 
Um, the magazine also has, you know, other modern stuff, like you mentioned, the Coolies, um, a San Francisco Bay Area band called, called Rays, um, whom we heard earlier, Lithics, uh, White Fence, Tim Presley from White Fence. There's a, there's a cool piece by a guy named Gregor Kessler, who's a German, um, writer, and he put, he put it, wrote about some extremely obscure 45s from New Zealand in the 1980s. Nothing that's on, like, Flying Nun or Expressway, but really, like, tiny labels, like, home pressings and things like that. So, so obscure that, like, when I tried to find some of this stuff after he wrote it, like, only one or two of them can be, even be found online to listen to. I, I definitely tried. Right. I've, I've been wanting to track down some of that stuff, too, but it seems like it's going to take a little effort. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely find somebody who's who can, can convert it for you, for, mm-hmm. you know, to an MP3 is probably the only way. Right. And um, Erica Elizabeth, who's the contributing editor, editor for the magazine, she did an interview with Unit 4, who are a poorly uh, documented all-female punk band from the early 80s who only recorded four songs. And it was their first interview ever, um, which came out well. And then, as I mentioned, the piece on Sybil Byer, along with um, some of the more modern uh, women who sound somewhat like her. So that's that's pretty much what's in there, along with tons of record reviews and your column, et cetera. Right. And we should mention, too, you said your distribution has changed a little bit. You now have the publication available through, is it Forced Exposure? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are some of the other places that people can track down a copy? Yeah, in fact, this one was selling so well initially that I got I, I couldn't stand going to the post office so often, which is a nice problem to have. So now I'm just going through distributors. So Forced Exposure is the biggest one. So you go to the, or if you go to dynamitehemorrhage.com, you can find links to all the places that are selling it. That's probably the best way to, to do it. All right. Well, let's get into some music that is uh, featured, or some artists, I should say, that are featured uh, in this issue. We're going to start off with something from World of Pooh. This is a track called Laughing at the Ground. Chuck a man, chuck a chuck a chuck a man. 
every time I shed tears And the last past years When I pass through the hills Oh, what images return Oh, I yearn For the roots of the woods That origin of all my strong and strange moods I lost something in the hills Something in the hills I grew up in declivities Others grew up in cities Where first love and soul takes rise There were times in my life When I felt mad and depressed And only the slopes gave me hope When I pass through the leg high grass I shall die Under the jessamine I shall die In the elder tree I need not try to prepare for a new coming day Where is it? The deepness I feel You will say I'm not Rubbing the hood But how could I Hide from top to food That I lost something in the hills I lost something in the hills So I lost something
Oh. Wow. 
point did you start the Dynamite Hemorrhage podcast in relation to the print publication? I mean, I know you've indicated that you served, uh, I guess, quite a bit of time as a DJ when you're in college and other uh, and, and other places like that. How how long were you involved in radio early on, and what motivated you to start up? I guess this podcast of your own, as you call it, your phony hour long radio show and podcast. Yeah, I didn't even know if the thing was going to fly um, when I did it. It was just one of those things where I, I'm, if I talk into a laptop and pretend that I'm a DJ, you know, like I used to back, you know, when I was actually was a, a disc jockey, you know, will, will it come off well? And I mean, I'm sure the first ones didn't, but eventually it morphed into something that sounded somewhat decent. Um, I started it in 2012 and, you know, I did real radio before, but I even did this thing in 2000 and 2001 for a lost online radio station, which was called Antenna Radio. And at the time I played nothing but 60s punk and like kind of R&B stuff because, you know, if I am not contributing to the scene, quote unquote, in some way, I feel like I'm just a passive music listener. And, and for whatever reason, I don't like that. I mean, I want to be writing or creating or something and I'll try any avenue that works. I mean, I, I even tried being in a band in 1990 and that was a total flop. So that helped me do Superdope. <laughs> and then you know, later after I finished or in the middle of doing Superdope, I did a very short lived record label called Loom. And now I try to do Dynamite Hemorrhage Radio to play, you know, gems from my MP3 collection <laughs> every week, every other week or so and it, it, it usually amounts to about every two to three weeks yeah you know i've heard others recently say this to me like podcasts have become in some ways like uh, zines were you know in previous decades you know where people can champion certain types of music discover certain types of music you know for you well first maybe do you feel the same way or what is the appeal of podcasting to you yeah, I mean, I, it definitely is is uh, analogous. I, I think that sums it up, and it's actually a lot easier to to do as well as I'm sure you can imagine. It's it's all very well and good for me to try to write about something, but the appeal of the music is, you know, it has to be filtered through my own sort of ham-handed writing. So it's much easier and far better to actually play the songs themselves, right, for, for someone. Um, and I try to organize every set, you know, somewhat thematically so that the stuff flows well from one song to the next. And, you know, sometimes that succeeds. And, and I also try, like you do, to focus on anything new that's interesting, which is sometimes a challenge, given that I have a somewhat curmudgeonly take towards new bands at times. So that's that, that <laughs> leads me to dig deeper but i mean i never would have guessed that the college radio shows in my youth would, would eventually migrate to platforms like mixcloud and soundcloud and stuff and they and they would be even better and kind of more targeted than what i grew up with i I'm, i mean i'm not really sure if they're replacing fanzines but they are replacing terrestrial radio in a lot of ways they they do complement fanzines but the fact that they're on demand and they can be listened to anywhere and anytime it really makes it hard for me as a listener to just like flip on the radio to see what a random college dj might be playing which is i'm sure that pains people at your station to hear. That's, <laughs> I'm sure that's happening with a lot of people, though. Right, right. Well, have you considered applying some of the interview and other feature components of the, the print publication to the podcast, like expanding uh, the focus and, and direction of that? Yeah, I mean, I have thought about it. It's always been in the back of my mind to try it and, you know, maybe Skype with someone and interview them, and, and maybe I will soon. Um you know, I, I think a great many of the bands I've interviewed over the years really, when you, when you, in all honesty, they really aren't all that interesting when you get right down to it. <laughs> but I think, you know, print forgives a lot more since the reader can sort of jump across the page and skip stuff that's boring or generic, you know, rock and roll shop talk. Right. That, that's more difficult to do on a podcast or a spoken interview recording. So I guess I would want to make sure that I did some strong editing. And maybe that's what's put me off from doing it so far. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, 
Maybe we should talk about some artists and albums that have caught your attention here in recent months. Maybe some things that uh, you've been playing on re- recent episodes of Dynamite Hemorrhage Podcast. And I know you plucked out some tracks for us here to, to play in this last set. But uh, uh, why don't you talk about a few of these artists? I know one of them in particular is a group that you've spoken quite a bit about on your website in the publication. One being uh, Honey Radar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely hard when someone says, what are you listening to these days? Like I, I always freeze up and I, and I can't remember. Yeah. You know? So I think, you know, what, what I've done for the set that we're about to hear is just a somewhat random selection of newer stuff that I really enjoy. Um, and I'll, I'll just talk about kind of what, what's in the upcoming set. There's, um, you know, starting with burnt envelope. Um, it's a guy named Anthony Pasquarosa and he, he's like this totally musically omnivorous guy from Western Massachusetts. It's from, um, a tape that came out in 2014 but was recently reissued on feeding tube called alien nation collected singles thus far mm-hmm. uh, you know he's been in mount elephant and the crystalline roses and and really a lot of stuff i haven't even heard yet um most of it not rock music but right right the burnt envelope just blew my mind earlier this year so i wanted to make sure people heard that um there is a band called cuts who are spinoff from the coolies it's chanel from the coolies it's a brand new 45 that came out this week on epic sweep records so i figured i would play that uh, in this set, Honey Radar, as you mentioned, a new album called Blank Cartoon. Um, they're, I wouldn't say they're a one-man band. They're a one-man-driven band, a guy named Jason Henn. I interviewed him in Dynamite and Hemorrhage Number no. 2. Um, I think it's the first uh, big interview that Honey Radar had done before. So love the new album, so uh, play something from that. Um, a guy named Andy McLeod, um, who is an acoustic guitarist, very much in the John Fahey school, and he has a brand-new online-only EP, so We'll play something from that. Um, and also in that vein, Nick Jonah Davis, who is a uh, UK-based folk guitarist, and he has a split LP with a, another folk guitarist who plays not acoustic but electric named C. Joins, um, who I saw when I was in London actually a couple months ago. And then um, ending the set off with uh, Thistle Group, who is a woman named Claire Mahoney, and she's from New Zealand. And I really wanted to put that in there because um, definitely the most experimental of everything in the set, but also it's very, it's so representative of the fact that so much incredible DIY stuff is still going on on those two tiny islands in New Zealand. It's just like proportionately, you can't believe how much great music is being made there. And I I heard that and I, I was pretty floored by it. So I thought we would play it here. Excellent. Uh, well, let's uh, sign off here uh, and play some of this stuff from uh, Burnt Envelope. But I want to thank you, Jay, for your time and for uh, picking out all this music here for us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So here is Burnt Envelope with It Must Be My Brain. Just find this thing I'm for. Not really sure what it is. Not really sure what it is anymore. Who's that sleeping in my bed? It's me, it's me, is what the creature said. It must be my brain. It must be my brain. Who's that laying in my path? Who's that looking on my ass? It's me, it's me, it's what the creature said. It must be, it must be. Inside my head, baby! I see you standing over there It's my brain 
that's going to bring this episode to an end. I want to once again thank Jay for taking the time to chat with me and for putting together all the great music you heard throughout the show. If you're interested in finding out more about the Dynamite Hemorrhage zine or to check out the podcast, again, you can head over to dynamitehemorrhage.com. If you'd like to check out the complete track list for this show, you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch directly with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. Check back in a couple of weeks for a new episode. And as always, thanks so much for listening.